are about to do a deep dive into Deuteronomy chapter 13, 14, and 15. So we don't got a lot of time to waste. But essentially where we're going is we are talking today about the cost, the cost of following God. We're, we're talking about the journey that we're on, the journey that we're on following God actually costing us something. And, and I'm going to identify three of those forks in the road, three of those defining moments where you will have to make a choice and it will cost you something, whether you are going to continue to follow God or not. And please, please hear me say this. I want to encourage you that though the cost may seem high, the reward, the worth of it far outweighs any cost. And yet I want to be honest with you as, as Moses being used by God is warning the people of these costs, of these forks in the road. And the reason these three are essential is because your future and my future hinges on it. But before we jump into that, let's do a little recap. Week one, episode one, Pastor Glenn began our series in the book of Deuteronomy, which means the second giving of the law, like the reminder of the law by talking about every single one of us has a promised land, that every single one of us has a calling that God has put on our life. Week two, Pastor Glenn taught us and, and challenged us as parents, and I felt personally convicted and inspired to remember that my job as a parent is to model for my kids what it means to put God first. And I wanna just, just press on that for a quick second. If you are a parent or an aunt or an uncle or a grandparent or whoever, a cousin, whoever you may be, and you've got people that are a little bit younger than you looking up to you, could I challenge you again to model for them what it looks like to make God your number one priority? Because I fear for my own kids that they will remember less of what I said and much more of what I did. And so I wanna challenge you to continue in that effort. Week three, Pastor Glenn uncovered for us how the scriptures written thousands of years before modern medicine and science caught up to the reality of germs and the importance of healthy living, how God was preparing his people to flourish. And then last week, week four, we talked about the significance of obedience on the journey. Sometimes you and I will see something. Sometimes you and I will experience something. Sometimes you and I will feel something so deep down inside. And yet it's not true, or it's ultimately not good for us. Roadblock number one, cost of following God on the journey number one is this. When someone's influence is breaking your relationship with God, you must choose to stand firm, to stand firm like you trust God. Find me in Deuteronomy chapter 13, beginning in verse one. If a prophet or one who foretells by dreams appears among you and announces to you a sign or a wonder, and if that sign or wonder spoken of actually takes place, and then the prophet says, let us follow other gods, gods you have not known, and let us worship them. You must not listen to the words of that prophet or dreamer. So Moses is getting in front of his people and he said, there are going to come about from among you those who will try to lead you astray, who will try to lead you away from God. And you have to make a decision now how you are going to respond to that. Now I want to give a disclaimer and make this crystal clear. God is not talking about doubting him, investigating him, 
exploring a relationship with him, wrestling with some of his truths, not fully understanding and wanting to read more. That's not what God's talking about here. In fact, that is incredible and that is essential. And maybe for some of you, if you don't ask those questions, that they have become like roadblocks. And if you don't ask those important questions, you will never get to the place of having an authentic relationship with God. And so what God is against here is not the pursuit of understanding him more fully. But the intentions of the fortune teller or the dreamer are clear that their goal is to invite the people of God to no longer follow Yahweh, to no longer follow God, but instead to worship other gods. You see, if you have really great questions, those deserve really great answers. What, what God's talking about here is you and I need to be careful of the influences in our lives that are intentionally aimed at separating us, at disconnecting us from God. Friend, I wanna ask you a question. Is there somebody in your life, are there people in your life who just their very influence is causing you to take steps back and away from God? It's not that they're asking great questions that's causing you to sort of be spurred on and investigate more and have a deeper faith, but just their influence, their friendship, some of the things they're into is just causing you to take a step back. I want to talk to the students for a minute here. That it can be so easy to be influenced by our experiences and our feelings and what another friend might say or even a teacher might say. And students, I want to encourage you. Because it can be so tempting to follow our gut, to follow the feelings, to follow the experiences, that we need to recognize, you know what? They may not be good for us. That even though what I'm seeing might make sense, it doesn't mean that it is entirely true or that it is good for me. The adults, maybe there's some people in your life, maybe there's that group of friends, and you're just going, you know what? Just when, when I'm with them, I'm just not strong enough on my own. When I'm near them, I just have to create a little bit of distance. Now, we have to live in some tension here because as the people of God, we're called to live on mission. And we're called to be salt and light to the world. We're not called to run away from the world. We're called to be in the world, representing Jesus in a way that the world looks in and says, I want what you have. But it is also important to be honest about those people in our lives who just right now, for whatever reason, they're no bueno for us. It's not good. It's not helpful for us to have them in our lives. And that is exactly what God is talking about here. And then verse three, check out what it says. The Lord your God, through this experience, the Lord your God is testing you to find out whether you love him with all of your heart and with all of your soul. So, so this relationship that might be in your life, God might be using it directly or indirectly to test you. And I don't know about you, but when I read that this week and I was studying it, I was honestly struggling with it. I was struggling with the idea that God would test me. I was like, man, is God just sitting in heaven, absolutely bored out of his mind? Does anybody remember the game Sims? Anybody remember the computer game Sims where he played Sims, right? You like create this, you know what I'm talking about, Dom. Like you create this little uh, neighborhood and this village and you're just like controlling these people. Like, is that what God is doing? Like he's so bored, he has nothing else going on. And so he chooses to test us and mess with us. And with deeper study, that's not what's going on at all. But in fact, I firmly believe that God tests us because he loves us. I want you to think about that for a minute. That you may be in a situation right now 
that you are looking at and you're going, I want to get as far away from this as possible. And God is seeing it as an opportunity. God is seeing it as a moment to do something in you, to test you, to reveal in you what's actually going on within you. Do any of you remember, we have any students in the house, do you remember taking your driver's license behind the wheel test? Do you remember that? Maybe some of you adults, you remember that? Or maybe you had kids take that and you're like, dear Lord, just keep them alive, like no red lights. You know what I mean? Like just please. You know what, as as a human, I am so thankful that we have behind the wheel test. Do you know why? Because I don't want any 16-year-olds driving around as I'm driving with my family, my friends are driving around, hitting us and doing whatever they want because the driver behind the wheel test reveals whether the student or the young person or whoever it may be has what it takes to drive on the road. Or another way of saying it, the test reveals what is lacking and what needs to be worked on. You see, I wonder if God is testing some of you because he loves you to reveal in you what is lacking and ultimately where he's leading you. I think this is what David is up to in Psalm 139, 23. Search me, God. Know my heart. Test me. I mean, he opens up, God, have you ever done this before? Have you ever said, God, test me so that we would know what's actually in me. And this is why to see uh, and know my anxious thoughts, see if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. You see, there is a connection between God testing me and between God leading me. Maybe another way of saying it is this. I can know where God wants to lead me if I am willing to allow him to test me. You see, we all want to know where God is leading us, but we all are very uncomfortable with him testing us because it is in his testing of us that he reveals where he is leading and ultimately what is lacking. So I just got back from Peru, and I'll talk a little bit more about that later in the sermon, but I just got back from Peru with our high school students. We took 33 of us for 10 days to Peru and got to do some incredible ministry, but for those 10 days, I was completely on, and I was absolutely drained at the end of those 10 days, and my ministry assistant, Courtney, and I, we were the last to leave the airport as all of the students got in their cars, and I was totally drained, and have any of you ever been on a trip before where you're just, for the last few days, sort of planning and and dreaming about how awesome it will be to be reunited with the people? You're thinking about the food you love to eat. You're thinking about how your experiences are going to go. I pictured I'd walk in the house and all my children would be right there with little cards and they would say, daddy, we missed you, you know, and they would just be like so loving to be so, that's what I was picturing. So Sarah calls me literally and she was supposed to pick me up right here. She's like, Eric, I passed the, uh, you know, the, at LAX, which is like hell. And so, um, She's like, I, I missed the exit. I'm, 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 I'm one you know, terminal ahead of you. So I'm running with all of my bags, sweating, haven't showered in days. I'm just sweating, just running. I jump in the car. People are honking their horns. We get in the car, we get home. And within 24 hours, like, I mean, it was insane at our home. I mean, Brinley, Brinley at one point, she, uh, she, had, uh, she grabbed my phone and she threw it, my five-year-old daughter, she threw it at Charlie's face. He's a seven-year-old. He starts bleeding, okay? Now I tell you these stories because some of you are like, man, I bet at Pastor Eric's home, they just sit and just pray and they just sing songs. In our house, there's more yelling than praying. And so anyways, we're praying. 
or I'm, I'm praying because I'm like, what's going on here? The kids are screaming. Uh, Lila, she is a full-blown three-nager right now, okay? She is in her teen years as a three-year-old. It is absolutely crazy. We're trying to like discipline them. We're doing a timeouts for days. I get home. I, have to, I literally have to take Charlie to urgent care. I bring him home for urgent care. Still haven't slept. All of a sudden, we're like trying to discipline Brinley, our five-year-old. And my wife and I are like, I don't know if you've ever been here as a parent, but you're just like, you're trying to figure out what to do. And we're like, Brinley, you're grounded. And you're like, a five-year-old? Like, how do you ground a five-year-old? Like, what does that even mean? So we're like, you're grounded. And it was crazy. And, and I went upstairs and I was working on my sermon and, and I just had been thinking about the last 24 hours. And then as I was studying this idea of testing, I was like, is God testing me? Is God using this experience to reveal something in me? And you guys, all of a sudden there was this perspective change. There was this dynamic heart change in me that went from seeing my kids in this last 24 hours as a problem to all of a sudden seeing it as an opportunity. Seeing it as a moment to reveal, man, I lack some serious patience. And so I went downstairs and I was like, guys, we got to get together. I know you're bleeding, Charlie. Just come here for a second. And so we kind of gather together and I'm like, guys, I got to apologize. I'm sorry. Man, I've been yelling at you guys. I've been so short fused, man. I've had no patience with you guys and I am so sorry. And I made a deal with the kids. I said, guys, here's what we're gonna do. If dad yells at you, I'm gonna pay you a dollar. Like, I'll give you a dollar if dad yells at you. And, and I, I, I explained the difference between talking sternly and yelling, which is basically justified yelling. And so I'm like, I can still talk sternly to you. And after, I, I don't think, you know, and I explained, I said, guys, I think God's teaching me a lot about patience and he's testing me through this experience. And I don't think they caught any of that because at the end of it, Charlie said, so dad, you're gonna pay us a dollar if you yell at us? And I was like, yeah. He's like, yell at us, yell, right? And I'm like, I think you just kind of missed the whole point of what we're doing here, but... But I realized in studying this passage that it is because God has an incredible amount of love for us that he chooses to test us. Think about the phrase, you're testing my patience. What does that essentially mean? It means you are revealing in me my capacity for patience. You testing my patience is revealing a lack in me. I wonder, I wonder how God is testing you right now. And I wonder if you have been running from that testing for a really long time. And maybe, just maybe, you leaning into God's testing might produce an opportunity for you to be shaped more into his image. Not only is God testing us, but he, he calls us as his people to test the experiences we have. In 1 John 4, 1, dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This means every experience you have, every feeling you have, everything that is happening in culture, every desire you have needs to be tested against God's word needs to be tested against the truth of who God is. And as Moses continues his explanation here, he says, though there may be some people who do signs and wonders and try to lead you astray, this is the goal. Verse four, it is the Lord your God you must follow and him you must revere. Keep his commands and obey him, serve him and hold fast to him. That is the kind of person worth following. That is the kind of truth worth banking your life on. 
Now, I'm about to do an analogy that I recognize is painful. It's, it's bad timing, honestly. It's going to offend some of you. But last night, I bought some Chick-fil-A, okay? Now, I recognize that you can't get this today, okay? That this is like a hot commodity that's worth thousands of dollars today, and you can't get this. But I was thinking about, I was thinking about this because I love Chick-fil-A so much. Um, heaven's food. I'm just obsessed. And, and I was thinking about how what I love with my Chick-fil-A sandwich is I love some of that Chick-fil-A sauce. Anybody else like admit addiction to the Chick-fil-A? Yeah, it's just, it's so good. So I love this Chick-fil-A sauce. But what I realized is that within me is this insatiable desire to chase after feelings, experiences, signs, wonders, confirmation that what I'm doing is just okay and God's fine with it, that I am constantly chasing after the sauce when maybe God is desiring for me to chase after the protein. That God is desiring for me to be filled with, to consume, to enjoy, to be satisfied with something that can actually take care of me. I mean, even though it would ultimately kill me. But anyway, just because it's so bad for you. But the meat in it. And here's the thing. I think a lot of us spend so much of our time chasing after the sauce. And I don't know about you, but I got, these, I got little kids who, you know, whenever we get Chick-fil-A, Sometimes they love to open it and just scoop their hands into the Chick-fil-A and eat it, which takes off a year of your life every time you do that. <laughs> but everyone knows you can't live off of this. You can't. But what's beautiful about this, I'm not getting down on signs and wonders and experiences and encounters with God, but it needs to be layered on top of God's truth. It needs to be layered on top of God's word. It needs to be layered on top of what it means to actually follow God. And when these two are brought together, it is a holy, sacred moment. Amen, right? <laughs> but just this by itself is no good. That just this by itself will actually do damage because you have nothing else to compare it to. You have nothing to layer it on top of to ensure that it is the real deal. To ensure, because this is what ultimately God has ultimately created you for. Here, I'm gonna, you want some Chick-fil-A, bro? Here you go, here you go. Enjoy that. You can eat during the service. That's all good. So, you got it. You got it. Oh, yeah, I'll take that drink. That's great. I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. You keep it, you keep it. And so, as we think about this, as we think about God's word being the anchor of our soul, being the thing that we are called to hold ourselves to, we see how seriously God takes this in verse five. And honestly, this is a challenging verse to read, but we're gonna read it as a community. Verse five, that prophet or dreamer must be put to death for inciting rebellion against the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. That prophet or dreamer tried to turn you from the way the Lord your God commanded you to follow. You must purge the evil from among you. I mean, this is absolutely intense verse and passage here. And I wanna, I wanna remind you that in Israel's history, this was rarely followed. In Israel's history, there are moments like in Exodus chapter 32 where the people of God have created a golden calf, an idol, 
And God gives them a second chance before wiping them out. He gives them a second chance. You see, God throughout scripture has always been the God of second chances, third chances, fourth chances. But what we learn about God from this last verse is that he takes very seriously. In fact, his number one passion for your life is that he would be your number one priority. See, God's no joke about this. I mean, he, he desires that he would be more valuable in your life than your spouse, than your kids, than your retirement plan, than your golf schedule, than your hobbies, than your vacations, than your comfort zone, than even your family traditions. God desires to be the number one person in your life. And not just because you were designed for that, and that is where life is experienced at its fullest, but because of this reason. When people abandon God, the world is in danger. I mean, think about, think about atheism as a life philosophy. Followed all the way to the end, it is unbridled, unrestricted selfishness. It is consuming people and things at, at an unfiltered rate, doing whatever it is that you desire to do. You see, as soon as the world turns to that, we are all in danger. And so God says, not only for your own sake, but for the sake of the world, keeping me as your number one priority is the most important thing that you can do. But it's going to require you to trust. In Brennan Manning's book, Ruthless Trust, he writes about an experience between an ethicist and Mother Teresa. He says this, when the brilliant ethicist John Cavanaugh went to work for three months at the house of the dying in Calcutta, he was seeking a clear answer as to how to best spend the rest of his life. On the first morning there, he met Mother Teresa. She asked, what can I do for you? Cavanaugh asked her to pray for him. What do you want me to pray for, Mother Teresa asked. He voiced the request that he had borne thousands of miles from the United States. Pray, Mother Teresa, that I would have clarity. And then Mother Teresa said, no. Can you picture that, Mother Teresa telling you no? She said, no, I will not do that. When he asked her why, she said, clarity is the last thing you are clinging to and you must let go of. When Kavanaugh commented that she always seemed to have the clarity he longed for, she laughed and said, I have never had clarity. What I have always had is trust. So I will pray that you trust God. So when experiences, signs, and wonders, or even relationships pull you away, choose to stand firm and trust God. Number two, Deuteronomy chapter 14 begins like this. You are the children of the Lord, your God. Do not cut yourselves or shave the front of your heads for the dead, for you are the people holy to the Lord, your God. Out of all the peoples on the face of the earth, the Lord has chosen you to be his treasured possession. This is crazy talk. 3,400 years ago in this time, in this place, gods did not talk about their created things in this way. That God looks out at his people and has since the very beginning and said, you are my children. I love you. You're my, you're my treasured possession. I have chosen you. Friends, let that sink in for a minute that the God of the universe, the God of all eternity who has always existed has chosen you. And when he thinks of words to describe you, he doesn't use the words that that person would use when you cut them off on the freeway. He uses treasured possession. 
He uses child of God. It doesn't matter how old you are, how young you are, how new you are in following Jesus, or how long you've been following Jesus. You are a child of God if you are in a relationship with him. And you are his treasured possession. Now, God begins the conversation this way because what he is about to challenge us with is this, this second cost of following him is when you have some money coming in, give generously like you are a child of God. And I'm gonna touch some points here and talk a little bit about tithing, talk a little bit about generosity. I'm just gonna ask you to go there with me for a second. Verse 22, be sure to set aside a tenth of all that your fields produce each year. So this is some of the earliest teachings on tithing, on taking 10% of the 100% that God has given you. In fact, when God is talking with Jacob early on, he, he reveals to him that everything you have is because I have given it to you. And so God calls his people to sacrifice, to give 10% of the 100% that he has given them, but not to do so reluctantly, but to do so recognizing that we are children of God. And that as it talks about in Genesis chapter 12, when God called Abram, he said, I'm going to bless you so that you would be a blessing to the world. You see, God always was missional. He always has been missional. His purpose in blessing you is so that you would bless others. So if you've been blessed and you're just consuming it for yourself and you're not sharing it, then you're missing it. Then you're missing it. But what's the purpose of tithing? It's to trust God and then it's also to meet the needs of others. Verse 28, at the end of every three years, bring all the tithes of that year, year's produce and store it in your towns so that the Levites who have no allotment or inheritance of their own and the foreigners and the fatherless and the widows who live in your towns may come and eat and be satisfied and so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. You see, God is thinking about the marginalized. He's thinking about the struggling. He's thinking about the poor. He's thinking about those that are down and out. He's thinking about those who have needs. And he's saying, when you tithe, when you are generous as a child of God, recognizing that I have been generous to you, that when you do that, you actually take care of the needs of the world and ultimately point people back to me. This, uh, this last week, as I was sharing, we were in Peru with a bunch of our high school students and it was an absolutely incredible experience. I'm gonna show you some photos, but what I got to experience firsthand was an amazing work that God is doing through Purpose Church missionaries, John and Natalia Gunderson. I mean, they have a church out there called Refugio Community Church where John is the senior pastor. They run all kinds of events, women's conference or women's uh, Bible studies, men's Bible studies, young adult, student. I mean, it's absolutely incredible. And we got to partner with this church all week long where in the mornings we'd put on an English camp and then a sports camp and then we would do a purpose kids camp and the same curriculum you guys were doing here, we were doing in Peru in Spanish and it was just an absolutely phenomenal experience to watch God work in our students and to use our students for his glory to build the kingdom. And I had this moment where I sort of just stood back watching all of our students and leaders partner with the Peruvian church over there. And I had this moment where I thought, I'm a part of this. Like I get to be a part of this. 
I mean, because Sarah and I have chosen to give here and to sacrifice here and to tithe here, that I get to be a part of this, that that just take Purpose Church in Peru, that every single week in Purpose Church and in Peru, there are young adult life groups happening. And that is happening because you all give and because you all are generous. That every single week there's Awanas and kids ministry in Peru and at Purpose Church. And the reason that God is expanding his kingdom and bringing little children close to him that will change the world forever is because you have chosen to be generous. I think about the outreach that they're doing there. They, they have an, an orphanage that's run, by the, that's run by the country. It's a public orphanage for girls that are ages 4 to 18. Many of them have been sexually abused. And John and Natalia have partnered with them and they go in and they share the love of Jesus with these girls. And our high school students got to go in there and one of our high school students got to share her story. And as she was sharing her story, she got up in front of all of these girls with a translator next to her and said, you know, before I really knew Jesus, I used to cut myself. I used to struggle with that. It was a coping mechanism for me. But God has freed me and healed me and changed me. And and I have this bracelet that I wear. And I wear this bracelet because it reminds me of God's faithfulness. It reminds me of what my wrists used to look like. But now because Jesus has changed my life, I'm free of that. Well, after she finished sharing, this Peruvian girl who's about the same age as our high school girl came up to her and said, can you tell me more about this? Tell me more about this Jesus. And they got to talk and share. And there on the spot, this Peruvian girl surrendered her life to Jesus. Hold on. Church, she surrendered her life to Jesus. And I don't know how that would have happened except you. Except you gave. You see, we get to be a part of this. We get to partner with God. Shoot, we need to take a second offering here. You know what I'm saying? Like, God is so good how he uses us to build his kingdom. It's why here at Purpose Church we say the local church is the best place to invest financially because every dollar you give goes further, faster. See, friends, I believe the church is a holy mutual fund. it's this opportunity for you and I to make investments that will ultimately outlive us. Some of you would say, oh, Jesus doesn't talk about tithing. He actually did. In a passage, Matthew 23, 23, he challenges the Pharisees and the religious leaders. He says, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. Jesus' teaching here is essentially this. Just because you give doesn't mean you can be a jerk, okay? And that's what we need to say, too. Uh, hear me, I'm not, I'm not just saying give your money. If, if you're a faithful tither here, but you treat people horribly, God's not okay with that, right? He's not like, well, you gave me 20 bucks, so I'm gonna let that go. That's not how it works. That God wants to change your heart and create a desire in you to cheerfully give that is ultimately an outflowing of the fact that you are a child of God and you go about treating people as such. In uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, As Paul's teaching his community about being generous, he says, each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So maybe it's not 10% for you, maybe it's five, maybe it's 1%, I don't know what it is for you. But I wanna encourage you that as you choose to give faithfully, 
that you get to be a part of the great work that is happening all around the world. There's this couple that I read about a few years ago that in July of 2010, this older couple named Violet and Alan from Canada, they won $11.2 million in a lottery. But what's incredible about this couple and the reason they became famous was not because they won $11.2 million, but because they chose to give 98% of it away. People, when they were interviewed, said, yeah, this is just who this couple is. They gave it to their churches. They gave it to their charities. They gave it to some community groups in the area. But here's what's fascinating about the story. One year later, July of 2011, Violet passed away. So here's this family who won $11 million. And they could have, for one year, spent it all on themselves. And then with her passing would have been all the joy and all that money. But instead, instead, this couple chose to make an investment that literally outlived them. Friends, you and I have an opportunity to trust God with our money, to give so that the foreigners, the fatherless, the widows, those who don't have might be provided for and might know God at a deeper level that you and I, every time we give faithfully, God does something that ultimately will outlive us in his kingdom. And lastly, lastly, Deuteronomy 15, when you are tempted as we are in our culture to objectify people, to treat people as tools, objects to be consumed, whether that's through pornography or through a business that we're dealing with or through somebody who works for us or we interact with, we're so tempted to just objectify people and use them for our own means. God commands his people to prioritize people like you have been freed by God. Deuteronomy 15, at the end of every seven years, you must cancel debts. This is how it is to be done. Every creditor shall cancel any loan they have made to a fellow Israelite. They shall not require payment from anyone among their own people because the Lord's time for canceling debts has been proclaimed. You may require payment from a foreigner, but you must cancel any debt your fellow Israelite owes you. Now, pause on verse three. I read that for the first time and thought, what's going on there? Doesn't God care about the foreigner? We just learned that. Why would he say you can keep the debt against the foreigner but not against the Israelite? Well, Jewish scholar and Deuteronomy expert, a guy named Jeffrey Tigge, he says this. Foreigners were normally present in a country for purposes of trade. Goods or money given to them on credit were usually investments or advance payments on goods, not loans because of poverty. So you see what what God's saying here is those, those quick investments, those quick payments for goods, that's not what I'm calling you to cancel. What I'm calling you to cancel is these long term debts that you are holding against your own people, the kind of debts that are crippling each other. And I don't know who this is for exactly, but this question just came to my mind and I'm just gonna ask it and maybe just pray about it. Maybe it's for someone here. But the question is this Who owes you a debt? that God wants you to cancel? Who owes you a debt that God wants you to cancel? It might be a relational debt. It might be a financial debt. It might be some history. 
I don't know what it is for you, but I just want to ask this question, not sure who it's for. Who owes you a debt that God wants you to cancel? And then lastly, verse 12, if any of your people, Hebrew men or women, sell themselves to you and serve you six years, in the seventh year, you must let them go free. And when you release them, do not send them away empty-handed. Supply them liberally from your flock, your threshing floor and your wine press. Give to them as the Lord your God has blessed you. Why? Verse 15, remember that you were slaves in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. That is why I give you this command today. So then he says, if somebody offers to be your servant and they're doing such a great job and you want to keep them, release them and don't just release them to figure it out on their own, but go above and beyond to bless them and provide for them. Why? Because you have been abundantly blessed and freed and provided for by God. Which leads to my second question. And I'm not sure again who this is for, but here's the second question. Who right now, who is God calling you to unexpectedly and extravagantly bless? This could get real fun this week. I want you to think, who is there in your life that God right now is calling you to unexpectedly and extravagantly bless. Because as the people of God, we are called to treat the people around us like precious image bearers, not profitable commodities. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you for the cost that it is following you. Thank you so much for the cost that it is to follow you. Thank you that it's worth it. Thank you, God, that you are challenging us as your people to take very seriously your truth and to stand on it, to give generously because we are the children of God, and to prioritize people, not to be consumed, but as image bearers, because you have freed us, because you have loved us, because you have treated us as such. So God, this week, may we count the cost of following you and discover that you are so, so worth it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.